and welcome back everyone to our way overdue next episode of Daughters of Darkness. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> I know we've been a bit missing in action recently, which is terrible because we've planned this episode for so long and then just all this other work keeps getting in the way. But hopefully this is the start of the resurrection year for the podcast because, I mean... As much as we appreciate all the lovely messages and emails we've been getting, we just feel so awful about having to wait so long. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I guess the dilemma is, you know, it's great that we're both getting so much work, both separately and together, but sometimes it makes it really hard to find time to do fun things like the podcast even though i think we both like doing this more than almost anything else well it's basically my social life so (laughs) (laughs) so just work the rest of the time so you know and it's nice to have this space as well and to just pick things that we really love to you know and things that we might not ever get the opportunity to do professionally because they've either already come out or you know for whatever reason so it is lovely to just have this space and just oh what are we in the mood for but we've been planning Barofchek for so fucking long and it's just we... yeah <laughs> right back to right back to when we first started in fact we were planning Barofchek so I feel like we failed in some way yeah, but we're doing it today. I mean, ideally, I still at some point would like to cover every Borovchik film on here. There aren't that many, Which but was, this is a good start. Yeah, this is a good start. And we picked such a fucking good, amazing example of a Borovchik film. Uh, I, and I can't believe I forgot about the fucking cock as well. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, for anybody who's new to the show... Uh, we should probably introduce ourselves at this point. So I'm Kat Ellinger. And I'm Sam Deegan. And it's been so long since we did one of these. We're all out of shape now. It's like, what do we do? I know. (laughs) Um, Well, part of the problem is I think we get so used to doing commentaries, which are more formal, whereas our podcast has always been an opportunity for us to say whatever the fuck we want. (laughs) I know, I'm so used to like introducing myself in such a formal way that I got a bit thrown out there. So we've chosen, the film that we've chosen is, I don't know what title we want to go for for this, Dr. Jacko et Le Femme, which is like one of the official titles. It was also released as Dr. Jacko and Miss Osborne. Was it Dr. Jacko and Miss Osborne? Or The Strange Case? The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne. I think that's the title Borovchik wanted, but Dr. Jekyll et les Femmes was sort of forced on him. Yeah, also known as Blood of Dr. Jekyll. I like the Miss Osborne, though, because it pays homage to Fanny Osborne, who was Robert Louis Stevenson's force of nature of a wife. So it kind of, I, I do like that title. Well, and I think that title puts an equal emphasis on Dr. Jekyll and on Fanny Osborne, which the film does. I mean, calling it Dr. Jekyll... So Dr. Jekyll and a femme is Dr. Jekyll and the women. And I feel like that's really kind of 
insulting in a way because yes there are other women in the film but the real focus is fanny osborne yeah it doesn't really make much sense other than it just sounds like a kind of a generic horror title doesn't it dr jackal and the women it's it's like promises women but you know there are other women but that it's not really about them it's not really about them whereas and this is one of the reasons why i love this fucking film so much it's equal 50-50 Fanny Osborne and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It really is her story. And so it just makes it such a brilliant film to unpack. And, of course, it's so perverse as well. It's like one of the most perverse gothic films ever made. So it's got that going for it. It's just incredible. I mean, I I don't even know what to say if you've never seen a Barovchik film, I have a hard time imagining that anyone who actually listens to our podcast hasn't. But they're, we're obsessed with him. And so you should probably start with Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, but you should see them all. Yeah, it's probably the most... I don't want to say it's accessible because it's, it's not necessarily accessible. No. <laughs> but it's probably... It's not even conventional. It's just probably the best place to start because it has identifiable genre tropes in it. So it's probably the easiest one to digest. But Yeah, I think it also will give you a good idea of whether or not Barovchik is for you because I think it includes a lot of his main themes like he often uses period settings he often does literary adaptations he usually has elements of sexual transgression and sort of sexually liberated female characters whether they're protagonists or just side characters i love the fact that when arrow did the big baroque check set there were quite a few collectors like just video collectors who bought it because obviously it was like big limited edition had this big campaign behind it and Terry, people like Terry Gilliam supporting it. And they bought this set and there were a couple that I know on social media who bought the Barofchek set. And then they start watching films like The Beast and they're like, what the fucking hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Barofchek is not for anyone who's interested in woke cinema. Let's no. put it that way. <laughs> and just so different to, just so different to... Uh, a lot of the other stuff that Arrow generally put out. So I think some people were quite surprised. Dr. Jekyll got a separate release. And then again, with the video collectors there, some of them were upset that it wasn't super high definition because it has got this very deliberate, uh, and I'm not a technical person, so I don't know the, the proper technical terms, the filters or whatever, but it's got like this very soft, filter on it has it. it has porn lens yeah well there you go that's a technical term <laughs> that's that's my technical designation it i mean diffuse. that's what it looks like yeah yeah this 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 really diffuse sort of look and it looks absolutely fucking beautiful but again people picked it up and they were like whoa why does it look like this you know they haven't done a very good job well no actually that's how it's supposed to look and it looks amazing because of that, it looks like it's almost like set in this dream world, this strange fantasy dream world, because everything's a bit diffused and it picks up on especially jewellery and certain lighting. It really sparkles in this weird filter that they've got on. 
So, yeah. Oh, it's so beautiful. And I mean, Borovchik worked with the cinematographer Noel Vary before, and I think it has such a really gorgeous kind of distinct look that... Mm. Like, I can't imagine. So I've I've definitely heard some criticism from more kind of straightforward horror genre fans that things like The Beast are too slow or, you know, they don't have enough genre elements, which I think those people are morons. But <laughs> here, it's just so it's just such a poetic use of, I think, some classic horror genre elements that, of course are ratcheted up to 11 on the scale of sexual perversion because it's Borovchik. Bless him. Well, it's gothic. Gothic has always been about perversion. Like, it's always been about perversion. I seem to have the, be having this rant every few months recently, especially after the new Dracula series and those angry guys who I seem to keep mentioning. I should stop even paying them lip service. But, you know, this didn't happen in the classics. But all those classic gothic films were all about perversion. There was a lot of sexual subtext, especially something like The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which even though it's not explicit, because Robert Louis Stevenson couldn't I mean, be explicit, it's all it's about explicit. becoming a fucking libertine and, you know, escaping this Victorian repression and bourgeois manners and just going absolutely wild. And I think up until Borovchek's version, there hadn't really been a version that could bring those really perverse elements, which are hidden in the subtext, to the screen because there was just no opportunity to do it. And so Borovchek seems like the perfect person to, to make that film. And he makes my favourite adaptation of it. And I love the Frederick March one. I even love the Hammer version. But this is just on another plane. And so I have seen kickback in that view. Like uh, more classic horror fans have come into the film thinking, oh, look, Dr. Jekyll and the women. You know, they think it's something like Hammer Horror. And they get Udo Kia writhing around in the bath. And <laughs> in a, a bathtub massive full of solicore. <laughs> yeah, a massive prosthetic cock. And buggery and all, and then they just they're just like this never happened in the classics. It's like yes, it did. Even if they weren't explicit, this is what it was all about. And I love. Well, the I mean, even in the Hammer version, you you basically have Hyde taking as his mistress this exotic dancer who deep throats her boa constrictor and yes. won't have <laughs> sex with anyone. Except she gives in to Hyde because he's a sadist and that turns her on. Like, it's there in every element, of the, in every version of the story in some sense. The Hammer version gets a bit of a hard time because it's considered a quote-unquote <laughs> lesser Hammer. And, Those, no. you know, and they were really <laughs> restricted with what they could do with that, which is a shame. But I think... Uh, the Hyde characters actually Christopher Lee who isn't Hyde. He's just this massive gobshite yeah, uh, freeloader scoundrel. <laughs> That's one of his best roles, in my opinion, for Hammer. Oh, it's such it's a great. shit house. He's just such a smug little prick, and he goes to nightclubs and he picks up strippers, and he's and really he, rude. And he, use, <laughs> he uses Doctor. So he uses Doctor Jekyll's money to pay off his gambling debts, and then. 
is having an affair with Dr. Jekyll's wife, Kitty. And he just is like the utmost scoundrel, but he <laughs> also great. is the only, he's the only decent person in the entire film. Yeah. He's <laughs> one it, it basically, it basically ends with Hyde raping Jekyll's wife and murdering her. So it's like, if you're going to be squeamish about a story, it probably shouldn't be any version of Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, even in the Frederick Marsh and Spencer Tracy versions, he beats his mistress. Like, it's pretty explicit. It's not in the classics, though. We don't mess with the <laughs> I think the problem people have with Barofchek's version is that a lot of the transgression and and the the kind of uh, escaping oppression is to do directly with sex. And they just seem to fucking hate that. I know we've talked about it time and time again, but they just seem to just really balk at the idea of sex, especially if that sex is for a woman's pleasure. And, of course, throughout the film, it's all to do with female agency, which is, like, the big thing for Barofchak. It's all to do with sexual discovery and... You even got a peripheral character who is has her own sort of sexual adventure. And I think that's the thing that they find so offensive about. But I just think it's funny because I'll occasionally encounter one of these more classic types who's accidentally seen it or bought it thinking it was like a hammer film and they're just outraged at how <laughs> dare they make Why this. Why are there smut- so many nipples? <laughs> <laughs> Came out in 1981, which is like almost like peak year for the slasher as well and it's and it's almost like the antithesis of a slasher i mean it is a body count by numbers movie but when you consider sex in the slasher had this very puritan american edge to it and you know you'd be punished the big thing is like you get punished in in the slasher for having sex it's almost like the antithesis of a slasher Whilst having oh, it and, is. and the but then the violence is just outdoes anything a slasher can do. And I'm not criticizing slashers, I love slashers, but I just this is something else. Like it's on a whole other level. So it comes out during that period where like was uh, the Living Dead Girl the same year as this or the year before? Yes. Living Dead Girl I think is eighty two. So yeah, around the I same think... time. You, you have these Euro cult directors. Oh, and venturing. New York Ripper is also 82. Yeah, New York Ripper. <laughs> so, you know, the Euros were really going for it in, in that little peak bubble. And Bloody Moon was another one. I think that was 1981. So, yes. yeah, you had the whole slasher thing going on in America. And then the Europeans were like, hold my drink. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the best thing I think about, well, I don't know if I could pick a single best thing about this movie, but one of the best things is that Hyde rapes a number of people to death, and I'm sure somebody is going to come burn my house down just for me saying that, but the response in the household to those particular deaths, and it, it happens to both male and female victims, But one of the greatest moments in the entire film is Dr. Lanyon, who, you know, speaking of Bloody Moon and Jess Franco, is played by the great Howard Vernon. And Dr. Dr. Lanyon has this amazing line of dialogue where he talks about 
how long the perpetrator's dick must yes. be. And, and he's like, wow. He's like, it perpetrated the abdomen. Like, he, he sounds so impressed. Like, wow, this is a giant dick. Like, well done. Labial minor, labial major, common, the vestibule and clitoris crushed and torn, tearing along the hymen stop. The vagina, length... Uh, 10 centimeters and a width of two centimeters originally. Enlarged and damaged by, uh, by a male organ, human or animal. Of um, six centimeters in diameter and approximately 35 centimeters in length. Stop. Due to the unusually pointed tip and the hardness of the shaft, Miss Victoria Enfield's belly was perforated from inside, uh, comma, just below the stomach. Final stop. Signed, Dr. <laughs> What's that? You fucking know it's going to be perverse when Howard Vernon crops up as well, don't you? You just know. Like, even I mean, though he's not the... a pervert in it, you just... <laughs> but he just looks like one. <laughs> I love Howard Vernon. <laughs> But the combination of Howard Vernon and Udo Kier, it's it's like, you know, gird your loins. <laughs> oh, Udo Kier. And I said this on a recent episode of How's Bow, so apologies to anyone if I'm repeating myself, but I think it bears repeating. I think Udo Kier isn't given enough credit as the king of perverse gothic because he did them all. He did Henry Jekyll. He did uh, Dracula, he did Baron Frankenstein, and then also in Lulu, he makes like a cameo as Jack the Ripper. So he is yeah, Mr. He's... Victorian Gothic, and all of those roles were just so fucking gloriously perverse. Well, and I think that's also why one of the alternate titles for this film is Blood for Dr. Jekyll, as it's trying to sort of ride on the coattails of Blood for Dracula. Absolutely, because he and and that film is incredible. Fresh of Frankenstein is incredible. Also, films that the classic types tend to look down their noses on, but I just think they are just wonderful examples of the type of gothic that I want to see. And I mean, he's he's even in stuff like I'm trying to remember what it's called. It has like ten different titles, but. It's one of the video nasties where he plays this super perverse writer who's basically kind of locked himself up in this house in the country to get a novel done. And he hires this assistant who winds up being a psycho. And it's set in modern day, like it's set oh, in the 70s. House on Straw Hill. Yes. Expose. And yes, Expose is the title that I know it under, but... It's another, it's sort of like an example of contemporary gothic. It's the same same themes, same perversion. The, the film that Linda Hayden won't talk about. <laughs> and she is bonkers in it. She won't speak about it. I interviewed her once and her agent was like, you're not to mention The House on Straw Hill. So I was like, fair enough. No. <laughs> it's like, that's my favorite. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that's her best role. <laughs> But Udo is just so fucking good at the whole... Go because he's sexually ambiguous anyway. You know, he's got that wonderful queer streak. He, and he's so beautiful. He's so beautiful. He can be such a fucking pervert as well. 
and I, I mean, and so I love those little that little section of gothic greats and they and again talking of the antithesis of the slasher film they're almost like the antithesis of the classic films as well which was a lot oh, of euro cult directors were doing were would would like people like Jess Franco for example Oh, really Rouen, couldn't stand definitely. what Hammer were doing. And I love Hammer and I love Jess Franco, but Jess Franco really couldn't stand that very staged, very formal, very closeted and, and buttoned up type of gothic that Hammer were doing. And so when you look at his gothic films, they're just very perverse and they're more surreal in the French notion of surreal gothic and they're more fantastic. So Jess Franco was doing it. John Roland was obviously doing it. And it takes a while, but then Borovchek finally does it as well, which seems like the perfect progression because he was already touching on things like very perverse and dark fairy tales in The Beast. And then you have the Bathory segment in Immoral Tales. So, you know, it just seems like the... Totally inevitable. Yeah, and an inevitable conclusion that he would turn to something like this. And I can see why he was so drawn to it because it's such a perfect story for him. But then he changes it and he makes it more about Miss Osborne's sexual awakening, which is just such a fucking incredible thing. It's just such an amazing thing. And I love that, of course, it has to be Marina Piero. So if if you're not a huge Brobchick fan... Piero was an Italian actress who sort of served as the muse for Borovchik in the second half of his career. And nobody could go as over the top as as she could in some of these roles. I mean, maybe somebody like Lena Romay beat her at it, speaking of Franco again. But she just really threw herself into these roles that Borovchik wrote for her where... She plays a woman who is potentially victimized, but is almost incapable of being a victim and turns the circumstances on their head so that she becomes the one with the agency and the power and, you know, explores her own sexuality, often in very violent ways. It's the best. She just had such a strong presence, I think. And compared to Lydia Branis, who was who dominated the first part of Borovchek's career, who had a more of a softer persona. Marina Piero was just... She could be fucking savage. D- demonic. And absolutely untamed and a total just... And she just had this such a strong libidinal energy as well, which translates amazingly here. But also in her role in Behind convent walls which was just before this 1978 and she was also in uh three immoral women as well and ends up in love she's great love rights in 87 which is and, and we're talking about the living dead girl she was in i don't want to say too much about that film if you haven't seen john Rollan, but came out around the same time as this and again, it's a very gothic story with a very, very savage approach, but it's also heavily weighted towards women's sexuality. There, and and Piero in that film is just fucking incredible. 
And she has this very similar presence to the one that she has as Miss Osborne. She didn't do like a huge amount of stuff, but the stuff that she did do stands out as being tonally different because of this persona that she had. I don't think there was anyone that could really match her in that role. Like you said, Lena maybe, but Lena was always more of a dreamer, more of a yeah. fantasy. And and Piero just had this, I don't know, just this edge, just this fucking fire, you know, that was... Yeah, I, I think it's pretty rare to say that part of an actress's persona is this sort of inner rage, because I don't think there are many actresses who have that, but maybe somebody like like Lena Olin in some of her roles in the 90s as as far as more mainstream actresses go but she's pretty unique I think in the way that she's able to just express this very kind of visceral sexuality and also explosive violence in sort of a genuine way like I think recently you shared some article that I really loved that this woman wrote about how in recent years we've had these sort of female characters in mainstream movies, especially in superhero movies. Yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh. The the one about No, you're about, thinking about the one Mike shared. New York. Yes, Times. about how oh. I don't that I don't want to be another tough guy we'll cut this bit female out. lead, that one. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. But basically the gist of the article is she says that it's great that there are more female leads in movies, especially action movies and some of the mainstream superhero movies, but a lot of those female characters feel like they're playing men. They just happen to be actresses. And yeah, and it's, I think it's Pierre weird. is the opposite of that. It's weird that that article, because I saw that article the day before yesterday, I think our mutual friend Mike from the Projection Booth he shared it on the Projection Booth page. And it was really weird because I'd just come to a very similar conclusion after watching Portrait of a Lady on Fire and written this whole piece for Diabolique on women's films and how... Uh, women's narratives and their sexuality because these comic book things are just so anti-sex they're just so sexless it's, it's repulsive so it's like we're going to put this strong woman here but basically she is just the same as a man there's nothing that distinguishes them apart from the fact that she'll be wearing a you know a different costume but it's a man's world like a very very violent sexless world and it's almost like oh well we'll just put this quote-unquote strong woman here but there's nothing feminine and I'm not saying all women are feminine but there's nothing to distinguish the characters I just see it as lip service and it was so weird I totally. wrote that article and then saw that and I was just like oh my god like you know this is you know I'm not being mad I'm not like imagining it and just being mean to comic book films this is actually a thing and it's frustrating because we're not, I mean, obviously in my article I pointed out films that are telling women's stories and are about, especially women's sexuality, seems to be the key theme of the modern woman's film. 
So things like a portrait of a lady on fire or the Duke of Burgundy or Elle, which we covered on a previous episode. Yes, which we love so much. Which are talking about women's lives and their sexuality and their families and, you know, just basically all the shit that women have to put up with. We, we've kind of lost that in the modern age. When you have, and the point I made in my article, and I referred more to 70s exploitation, was we had those strong ball-busting women in people like Tura Satana and Pam Greer, but they also they had... They were allowed to be women. They were allowed to be women. They, had, they, they own their own sexuality, which I think is a really important thing. And Marina Piero falls into that. She's just not this savage, mindless savage, acting like... Doctor, uh, like Mr. Hyde, she's not just this mindless savage. She it actually becomes this evolution. And I'm jumping ahead now, but I love the fact that at the beginning they talk about this. What's the word they use? Uh, the the pregnant woman. The they're all looking at that oh, painting. Yeah. Uh, that, not that transformative. Is one of my favorite things. But they they talk about oh god, what is the word that they use? It's like, um, you know, they talk about this. this Oh, transcendental. transcendental. They say it's transcendental. And then at the end, that that is used again in conjunction with Miss Osborne's change. And it's like this woman with her transformation has become the mother and the nurturer. And with Miss Osborne, she's rejected all that and she's become the destroyer. And I just think that's like just one of the most fucking wonderful things like she's become the opposite of that painting and she's freed from you know an arranged marriage and you know all this deportment and rules and stuff she's actually freed but she still has her sexual nature she still has her femininity and she's fucking wild and she's powerful and she's feral and that's not something i see in these recent i'm going to call them token ball-breaking women who, like, oh sure! Like the Wonder Woman and the female Ghostbusters. It's like it's it's just a oh we'll just put women randomly into this film as men, but they're not going to be they're just going to be sexless entities. And it's, which is it's so strange. It's a fucking well, you, con. no, and I I totally agree with you, but I I also think what's so weird about it is that if you take a comic book character, and I don't want us to talk about comic books, no, I know superhero <laughs> movies too much here, but Blood if you take a comic book character like Black Widow, she like one of the main sort of functions of her character is that she uses her sexuality as a weapon and uses it to her advantage, and. I think maybe in like the first or second Avengers movie you see like a glimpse of that but to even to take a character who's supposed to be this like Soviet super spy honeypot type stock character and to make her sexless it's like damn <laughs> like well, if you I feel look, like you have to try hard yeah if you look at the Superman films and Margot Kidder's character in those in the Lois Lane she wasn't like that she wasn't sexless she was like a ball-breaking woman but she still had this very ferocious sexually charged energy and I know there's like a, a thing now that women shouldn't be sexualized and it's all for the for the man's gaze and we should just we should stop doing that but actually I totally disagree because I think 
the one way that we are constantly repressed and oppressed is through our sexuality. I'm not, I'm not saying all Definitely. women should be sexual if they don't want to be, but like whether you're sexual or you're not sexual, you're criticised for it. You're frigid or, you know, you, you're a slut. Or you're a slut, yeah. And so eliminating that because it's too uncomfortable or it might be read as sexism is not the fucking way to go. I think films like Portrait of a Lady on Fire establish, and Duke of Bird, Burgundy. And uh, the Lanthimos film. Uh, yeah, and the favourite. They, they establish a very strong sense of female sexuality that feels potent and inspiring and so you can do that and not fall into the traps of just doing it for commercial titillation not that there's anything wrong with that but you know you can do it on a on a women's sphere i think filmmakers are proving that but there's just this thing of like removing sex and just making these women violent for the sake of it the thing i love about miss osborne is although she erupts into violence it's like a sexual violence like she is just completely oh, ravenous, and it, and it's just such a wonderful thing to see. No, no, we have no more solid car. No. <gasps> well, and to to return to your point earlier about the portrait, so. One of my favorite things about Borovchik is his use of image or uh, his use of objects, which, if you watch his films, it's something he returns to time and time again, where he uses these really often beautiful, ornate objects that are shot like they're a character and uses them to say something symbolic. And Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne starts with these two paintings. One is a painting of Jekyll's father who looks like he has the least amount of fun in the entire world. <laughs> and the second one is the painting you mentioned, which is the Vermeer painting of the pregnant woman. And they're used, I think, to really underscore the world that Jekyll and Fanny live in, which it has all these rules. You're supposed to aspire to wealth basically a woman's a woman's only function is to be sold into marriage and to produce children and by the end the fact that both of these paintings are basically set on fire and <laughs> trampled on it's glorious it just, it's so wonderful i think i mean we haven't really talked about the plot but just the whole idea that this violence is linked to sex the whole idea that hyde is totally like he's equal opportunities in who he fucks to death so that instantly takes it into taboo because he will bugger men to death but there's all this wonderful and... <laughs> subtext in there about victorian repression about sex and we haven't mentioned him yet, but the but the oh. wonderful Patrick McGee. <laughs> General Carew. <laughs> oh, my God, who's just wonderful. It's one of the few Barofchek films I like watching with the English dub, because I don't generally, because there's a French dub, because you get to hear Patrick McGee's voice in it and just... It's so distinctive. And the fact he keeps calling him Dr. Jekyll as well. <laughs> It's, it's almost like he's fucking with him on purpose. <laughs> Dr. Jekyll. But he just puts this like weird pauses and, and just everything he says is over dramatic. 
but he's got this kind of like uh new daughter daughter who's who's you know has to suffer his draconian rule and she gets really into mr hyde and actually fucks him in front of the dad as some sort of punishment when he's tied up and then they've got the the prosthetic cock comes out and and she's just like look look daddy and then it goes into even weirder territory because after that she then gets a bare ass gets whipped by the father which is amazing (laughs) and he's so into it it's It's like a repetition (laughs) of the sex scene it's like in the sex scene, you don't like she doesn't really get naked. She bends over this antique sewing machine and in one of the most like beautifully shot sequences of the film, bends herself over this sewing machine right in front of her father, pulls up her petticoat so that you could see her ass. And so then, of course, it basically is convinced to untie her father because Hyde has tied him to this chair and it's like the same thing where he bends her over and exposes her ass and whips her and just has the most look of insane frenzy that really only Patrick McGee was capable of. Oh, like, he's, he's frightening. incredible. But he's so into that scene and he just has this really disgusting, gleeful look on his face where he's like really beating her with this with this piece of rope. Like, he's just really getting off on it. So you've got, like, the incest connotation as well, (laughs) which I fucking love. Of course. It wouldn't be a perverse gothic story without some incest. It has to have the incest. I should do a book, like, uh, gothic films that would have made Matthew Lewis proud. (laughs) Because we recently talked about that on the Malabimba track with Heather Drain. Oh, yes. How Matthew Lewis would have probably been very proud of that film as well because it totally is in like a lewisite gothic tradition you have two gothic traditions you have the radcliffian that comes out of gothic romance and Anne radcliffe which is the creepy castles and the shadows and the mysteries and the the pretty maiden floating across the hallway with a candle and all that (laughs) all that stuff that we know so well whereas the lewisite tradition you only really tend to see in European Gothic films that are later on. And that was necrophilia, incest, devil worship, nuns being set on fire. You know, it was it was just all of that. Tortured monks raping people and very sad <laughs> So it is like a totally Lewisite Gothic film in, in all the best ways. Because I mean I talked about gothic being sort of buttoned up and uh, Matthew Lewis didn't give a shit about that he was writing in 17 I think 1796 1797 he didn't give a shit he put the necrophilia in there and the incest and the rape and the devil worship and the and the I think the thing that comes closest to it in a filmic sense in tone not in in story is Alucarda, <laughs> 1977. Oh yeah, probably Alucarda, and it influenced Satanico so Pandemonium comes pretty yeah, close too. Satanico Pandemonium, and again, it's not really the more Western Gothic films that are doing it. It's it's like Mexico. It's yeah, anything Europe. English language is we're too repressed. Well, the British couldn't get away with it, like with Hammer, even though there was so much sex in Hammer. But the British, like, we're really repressed anyway. So 
you know. So are we. <laughs> We're descended from Puritans. <laughs> There's no way they would have even dared to, to put anything like Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne in there, you know. Mary Whitehouse yeah, I mean, would have had a stroke. <laughs> American society is basically founded on the worst and most repressed British people got on a boat and came over here. <laughs> The people <laughs> spread that, their message of repression. I know, the Maypole banners and the people that wanted to ban things like kissing un- under the mistletoe and <laughs> just all the fun yeah, but things. I, I feel like we're still, in a sense, being punished by those people who are like, you can't have anything sexually explicit in a film. Porn is evil. I don't want to see people masturbating. It's like... Well, not Why? to go back Just... to comic books, but that is one of the things that I've never really understood about America. And it's the same thing with the slasher as well, to a certain degree. You know, the slasher just being a totally American brand of film. is this idea that you guys are quite happy with, like, excessive levels of violence. But God forbid... Get a someone tit out a tit and God out. forbid. What is that about? <laughs> I don't know. And I... I know I've told this story on here before on a previous episode many years ago, but to me, the sort of height of American horror fan response to Euro horror is on a forum. I don't think it was Devil's Wedding Night. It was the uh, Slaughter Hotel. There's this <laughs> There's this scene <laughs> where... Uh, the best scene. Oh, oh my God. What? Wh- why is her name... Yes, Rosalba Neri masturbates in a shower. And the comment on this forum was, it was basically like, you know, I watched Slaughter Hotel because I thought it was going to be sort of a slasher, sort of a regular Jalo movie. I am appalled. Why is there... Why is there a scene of a woman masturbating? Why can I actually see her her vagina? Except I don't think he he used some very sort of like <laughs> clinical embarrassed word. They always in, do though. I know, but it's like in in Slaughter Hotel. If you haven't seen it, it has some soft core scenes, and there is definitely a stand in for Rosalba who actually fingers herself. And the fact that you could see some woman really touching her own pussy lips was like he wanted to set himself on fire it was like too much ban the film why why does this exist and it's like clearly you've never seen any baravchik where in in the beast he has some woman who hasn't you know is having sex with her boyfriend and the sex is interrupted and so she just like hops on the bed frame and starts having sex in the bed frame (laughs) Which is just the greatest thing ever. I've never understood, though, how we've got to a position because, you know, growing up, I always thought horror was, you know, more associated, or at least the people I knew, more associated with heavy metal fans or punks or, like, more subcultural type of people. Although I knew a lot of people that were into European films. So, you know, I didn't really get to meet those real kind of trucker neckbeard types of horror fan till later on they're like yeah you know jason horror bros yeah like i think they're they're more of an american thing 
Yeah, like they eat. No, oh, it's, God, it's, I fucking hate that twat. It's <laughs> it's basically the Eli Roth school of horror bros where they pretty much go from the gym to watching Friday the 13th yeah. movies. And I like a lot of Friday the 13th movies, so I'm not necessarily talking shit on the series, but they attract a certain type of They're fan. They're weirdly conservative and get very, very yeah. upset with... Anything to do with if a woman is taking charge of a sexual situation and isn't punished for it. And another one, and I've said this before on this podcast, I mentioned it in my article. Of, oh, on women's this is films, the best. It's The Shape of Water, where I saw a thread on a popular genre magazine page, including the editor who started the thread. They felt that having a character masturbate in the bath because it wasn't for titillation, it was basically just put in there as part of the plot to show you that she was somebody with desires and needs and, you know, so it wasn't like uh, her just getting off or whatever. It was done for her pleasure and for her identity and it was an important part of the film, I thought. It was a fucking step too far. They were going absolutely mental about it. And this guy's like, I took my mother to see that film and this is absolutely... Like, you're horror fans. What is wrong with you? You're quite happy also, seeing somebody dude, having their eyeballs think... dug out and their entrails eaten, but a woman in a bath fingering also, herself, like, dude, not even in closer. Woman... <laughs> no, but it's like you took your mother to see the film. You think your mother hasn't rubbed one out in the shower? <laughs> like, come on, dude. If you'd said that to him, he would have died. He probably would have. It's just so weird. I think that's why Barofchek doesn't really appeal to that market. <laughs> diplomatic no. word. Uh, yeah. That's a nice way to say it. But yes, I think he represents everything we love, that this particular... Well, and it's like two different groups, which is part of the problem. It's the one group are the horror bros that we were just talking about, and the other group are the feminists who want to be super PC and claim to be very woke, but in reality are actually pretty conservative yes. and want want to ban anything that they don't agree with or don't like. It's like not watching it isn't enough. It has to disappear. And they do, well, when they come across them, which isn't that often, when they come across the more Euro-orientated horror films, instantly read them as misogynistic. And I know Barofchek had certain accusations of being misogynistic because he's, as did Jas Franco and John Roland, because they're all very, very focused on the idea of the woman. Uh, but And it's all because of that fucking male gaze theory, which I hate. Which is the worst. Like, fuck you, Laura Because Moldy. it's like, yeah, it's like you're not just watching a film and, and having something put on you by a director and he's not all powerful. For a start, it's not just, no matter how much of an auteur you are, it's never just the director's vision because, you know, obviously you have all the other people involved, including the performers. And, you know, with people like Marina Piera, there's no way you could suppress that woman, no matter how you try to capture her. Lena Rome no. was another one. They just got such a fierce strength. Marlena Dietrich, like, you, you just can't contain that. Uh, and, and also, audiences are not passive. You're not just sat there looking at things and receiving messages, the way that we interpret things can be entirely different based on so many different things, like our gender, our life. And so I don't believe in this fucking male gaze bullshit. I'm sorry, I don't. Just because you have a woman undressing 
doesn't mean it's for the director's pleasure. You know, as a female viewer, I can watch that and get just as much pleasure. Why, like, why does it have to be about just the fucking director? I don't get it. Well, I, I feel like this idea of the male gaze is, in a way, and I think you're going to know what I mean. I might have a little trouble explaining it, but is in, I think, in a way misogynistic because it, it sort of implies that women don't have any sexual yes, desire. I totally agree it's like, with you. It also, it's like you don't think that lesbians and bisexual women and probably even some straight women can't watch a scene with a naked woman or an erotic scene featuring a woman in in some combination and not derive some sort of sexual pleasure from that like it's just so backwards yeah no i totally totally agree with you it's like all pleasure is there for the man because that was a man who shot but like the duke of burgundy was made by a man but i think that film is flat out one of the most erotic films i've ever seen i think barofchek's films and and i'll quick horrible shameless plug but late last year i started writing a collection of erotica and my called the chamber of beasts but i'm going to publish them as short stories so it's like a collection of short stories and my main inspiration is the work of angela carter and the work of valerian barofchek because i think those two guys and we can explore this uh have this uh sense of you know, women unlocking their bestial natures and transforming because we're always told the beast is the man and you should stay away from the beast. The beast is dangerous. And, you know, that's not for you. Women shouldn't be like that. And you should be nice and polite and submissive. And I see Angela Carter and Barofchek are so very, very closely connected. And the stories are inspired by, they're not copies of, but there is one on Dr. Jekyll that has like a reversal in it. Not the same as this. But I just find that entirely inspiring. And that is a man who made those films in his vision. Yeah, he obviously loved women. He obviously loved uh, Ligia Branis. He obviously loved Maria Marina Piero. But the I see those films as very pro-woman. John Roland, the same, very pro-woman. Jess Franco, the same. So this whole game it drives me crazy it, it's like saying that we have no say or play any part like we just sat there passively just watching a man's sexist vision and then if we agree with something being erotic we're told we've been brainwashed by the fucking patriarchy and <laughs> it's it's just enraging because it's like you're basically being told again and again that no matter what your reaction is, you have no agency, no mind of your own. And the thing that especially makes me crazy is exactly what you just said. Like, just because it's directed by a man, it can't be pro-woman. I mean, if you take directors like Catherine Brayat, like Roberta Finlay, they're women directors who have made films with erotic content, but they're not feminists like yep. vocally both of them said have said like we're not feminists and a lot of their content is has a ton of sexual violence is really transgressive so it just 
it's like this need to sort of shoehorn things into these like convenient little boxes makes me insane. I think, and Borovchik, of course, was against all of that. I think the rejection of feminism, though, if you are making films like Romance, which I would say is like a deeply feminist film. Oh, yeah, me too. I think the, the rejection of that publicly is because people or women want to distance themselves from the current third wave movement, which is largely hysterical woke Twitter dickheads. And a lot of men. Well, that's how I feel. Especially a lot of men as well. And I said this on a recent episode of How's Bows. I'm refusing to give up the fucking term. I'm going to define it in what I see as feminism because I don't agree with that. For like feminism to me is Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, is the Duke of Burgundy or Roma. Like I see those as feminist films because they put sex at the centre and they, and they show how powerful a woman's sexuality can be. And why it's important that we embrace the beast. That was the thing that I loved about Angela Carter. I saw The Company of Wolves. I think I was about 11 or 12 when that yeah, came out too. on video. You know, around the same time, you know, starting menstruation and that blossoming, confusing period where you start to become aware of erotic things. And that film came along and led me to the written work of Angela Carter and that was all about, you know, don't be afraid of the beast. And you don't even have to tame the beast. You can be the fucking beast. And that blew my fucking mind. Like, that film has so much to answer for. Because it just... And I see that same thing in the work of Borovchek. And I wouldn't be surprised. I know we've talked about Angela Carter in regards to Valerie in her Week of Wonders and the work of Uri Hertz. But she was very engaged in Eastern European film. She did see Valerie in A Week of Wonders and was inspired by that for The Company of Wolves. Obviously, there's a crossover, and it wouldn't surprise me. I know Neil Jordan, he was the director of The Company of Wolves. Borovchek's Blanche was one of his favourite films of all time. So you've got two people there who were like heavily invested in Eastern European film. I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't a fan of Borrow as well because this is too oh, yeah. like the beast in in a lot of Angela, Carter's, so Angela Carter. yeah a lot of Angela Carter's story short stories and especially in the bloody chamber so she rewrites things like Beauty and the Beast and the company of wolves comes from several short stories about lycanthropy and she pushes them all together and makes like a big thing out of it and the key theme in that is is women, you have women turning into beasts, turning in, she does a, a version of Beauty and the Beast where beauty becomes a beast. You have women turning into birds, into animals to escape this repressed, like very uh, repressive male environment. Uh, and things like The Company of Wolves where you have a woman deciding to become the werewolf at the end she's not going to be eaten she's going to become the beast i see that in borrow i see it in the beast i was talking about the beast where you have a similar story where a woman her erotic imagination is inspired by reading this diary and she opens up her sexuality to this world of the beast and you see it in this because fanny osborne's ultimate liberation comes by turning into the beast you know, maybe not a fictional supernatural beast this time, but of a beastial type. And so there's definitely like this cosmic connection between those two guys, definitely. 
Oh, totally agreed. And I think it's also, it has a lot in common with this sort of loose trope that I think we talked about many, many episodes ago when we did our like American underground films, like when we talked about centerfold girls and things like that, where there's this trope where it starts off with a female character being raped or assaulted and then she's able to turn that experience on its head and take the power for herself. And I think that definitely is present in different ways in Angela Carter's fiction and it shows up again and again throughout Borovchik's films. And yeah. to your point earlier, I think that is some of why he's labeled as misogynistic is simply because he has sexual violence in his films which I find super frustrating because like there seems to be this idea that sexual violence is something that happens and it's horrible and it's very triggering and everything triggers me and I don't want to see any kind of sexual violence in art, in fiction. If it's in a museum, we have to ban it or put it in a special room and I don't want to see it in films. And I hate that so much. Like, I know that you and I are both sort of, I don't want to say outliers because we're definitely not alone, but there are people who don't have a problem with sexual violence in film. It's and, also the fact that people speak yeah. for survivors, and I don't want to get too personal on this, but, you know, as we said yes. on our episode. That's episodes, why it makes me crazy. You know, if I ever wrote my life story, people would be shocked about stuff that I, and, and I just find things that re-establish women's sexuality and deal with things like sexual trauma and rape and abuse in different ways instead of hiding it away it can become yes. incredibly cathartic and oh, i often so cathartic. see women who you know admit themselves that they've never really experienced sexual trauma decide for other women like they'll be like but i'm so triggered by this you know, so I need to speak for the victims. And there's just, you know, I know we explored it on our fuck air. Fuck off. Yeah, so fuck off. You don't get to speak for me and what I want to see on screen. And, you know, I don't think we should shy away from it. And I know a lot of it is fantasy, like rape revenge. I know we both love that genre and it is total fantasy. But sometimes we need those fucking fantasies. You know, we just need them. Yes. To just... Well, and I think that's why... I love that Boro explores that so frequently in so many different ways throughout his films. I mean, you could find in almost every single one of his films a scene where a woman is being is being or about to be objectified or harassed in some way and is able to totally turn the tables and has enough agency and power to make the situation hers and under her control. And there are not many directors. I mean, definitely Franco and Roland, who I think we often talk about the three of them together, but there aren't a whole lot of directors and there are almost no American directors who do that sort of thing. Verhoeven definitely is another one. Well, look at how he treated his men at Brofchak, how Brofchak treated his men which was completely different to Franco and Roland, one of the things that makes him stand out is men in his films are often very weak or idiotic. Or look at The Beast, for example. You've just got this weird, perverse child man thing, 
you know, we've all, we've all dated one of those. You know, car, you know, prefers looking at horses, having sex to, you know, his prospective wife, and he's just really fucked up. But he wasn't particularly sympathetic to men at all, and they often exist completely on the peripheral as almost ridiculous <laughs> characters, and it was all about like, the women. It was all about well, the like women. Well, like the. Like the horrible, uh, the horrible male protagonist in Story of Sin. Yeah, he was just the worst. <laughs> I was trying to remember his name because we had that drinking game because his name's mentioned Nipomonsky. Yes, or something like that. He he, like it's where is he? <laughs> it's like <laughs> turns up everywhere. But he's like this very childish, very weak kind of pathetic person. Henry Jekyll isn't so much that, although we have got ridiculous characters. So we've got, for example, well, it's Patrick McGee. I mean, he's Udo, and but he still has this. You know, he's still like the weaker of the two. Once Miss Osborne gives up, and she is the one pushing that for. Like he's like, oh no, we have to give up now. What? I and mean, she's diving into that thing because yeah, she, she's like, fuck that. Yeah, so she <laughs> is the stronger of the two. Definitely. And I think it's just such a really powerful element of Borofchek's films. He would often expose things like hypocrisy and he does that really well here because he has this very bourgeois oh, so well. Victorian family. We're just so obsessed with, like you said, money and status and everything. And he just rips through every single one of them to show every single one of them what a fucking hypocrite they are. And he, and he was so good at exposing hypocrisy. And things like Immoral Tales with Lucretia Borgia's story, for example, the way he used to expose priests as being paedophiles and just, you know, he, he was just so brilliant, like so almost like anti-bourgeois. And but th that's what's so great about General Carew's character is, you know, I think the one of the ways that this really differs from the main story is in the main story, the source of violence is Hyde and it doesn't really come from anywhere else. But in Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, they're all trapped in this house and it, like Hyde is responsible for the worst, most exaggerated violence, but he also inspires violence in other characters. Like General Carew goes <laughs> completely completely off the fucking rails at the first opportunity and <laughs> yes. kills one of the coach drivers with a shotgun and is just like whoops <laughs> we and he doesn't he doesn't even take responsibility and say i shot him he says he says we made a mistake and we accidentally killed the coach driver <laughs> <laughs> like typical bullshit hypocritical thing where it's like Yes, I, you know, I'm going into battle. I am a man, so I am defending my household. But as soon as he, he's done something wrong, it's not, it's no longer his fault. I do wonder, because you often see it in directors who've been criticised by the bourgeois. So Chabrol was another one. Alfred oh, Hitchcock had it in. best. Ha Alfred Hitchcock had it in, in him. Zhivowski, uh, definitely. You know, these filmmakers that started off riding high and then they did something that annoyed the bourgeois. With, with Borovchek, it was doing things that were too pornographic. One minute he's the darling of the art high scene and the next minute he's like, get this fucking weirdo out. Marco Freire was another one. Pasolini pissed them all off. You know, and you often see then in the films, you get this like, it taking, and Hitchcock loved to do it, this almost taking the piss out of 
bourgeois culture almost as a way of getting back to them and it's definitely more pronounced in Barofchek's post beast post the moral tales films that he really just you know cut into this which is why I think it's fucking hilarious that this very bourgeois art culture now seem to be re-embracing Barofchek because it's like back in fashion and you know after leaving him out in the cold for several decades because you know too much porn of course now we're allowed to say we like that for artistic reasons they can bring him back in but you know he would have fucking hated those people he was at least there was one thing about him was he was never pretentious ever no and there's that really great interview where Somebody asks him if he's a pornographer and basically tells them to go fuck himself. (laughs) It's the greatest thing ever. That's what inspired my rant, actually. And I can't remember where the interview was from, but he he gets asked about, you know, his pornography and he just throws it back to this interviewer to to say, like, you know, doesn't everybody watch it? You know, what are you trying to say? And, And it was this, like, oh, he's like this grubby little Polish man who's making these rude... You know, there was that attitude towards him and now there's been more yeah. of a lifting up and like oh we, we can embrace him now because we've just realized actually he was a fucking genius and terry gilliam likes him so <laughs> but it's it's really frustrating it like, is really frustrating when i see it because i just think you know he's taking the off. piss out of people like you <laughs> well and that's what frustrates me it's like part of me is really glad that he's getting all this new attention he's getting re-releases of his or releases of many of his films for the first time in any sort of decent quality there have been barobject retrospectives like i think all that is incredible but at the same time the hypocrisy is really frustrating I sound so bitter, but it's like that whole fucking for for a little while he became like almost a god in the hipster film school crowd, like for a little pocket. And, and I just I thought, no, people... <laughs> leave him alone. Well, and I, I feel like those people primarily seem to have watched the early films like Blanche and Goto. And didn't really delve into the later super perverse stuff. I mean, Behind Convent Walls, I think, is still his least screened film because the Catholic Church is still so offended by it. I mean, it's incredible. It's a beautiful film. It was because of the Arrow set, though. And then at the same time, the BFI did Alan Rob Greeley and they were all over him as well. But it was quite funny trying to read some of the interpretations of both of those films. Yes, trying to paint them in this sort of more family-friendly light. Yeah. Like, did you actually watch these films that you're reviewing? Like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and, and, and you're right, because there was one particular writer I'm thinking of who was an incredible hipster of the highest order, doesn't write anymore, uh, did the Arrow box set uh, disc by disc and kind of, stop reviewing them after island of go to and there were no more reviews <laughs> to that yeah so i'm gonna review this whole box set actually no i'm not <laughs> actually i feel very triggered and now i have to go lay down <laughs> i have to go lay down and drink a craft beer <laughs> as long as it's vegan as long as it's God, vegan. who else are we going to attack on this episode? I feel like I'm constantly attacking people these days. <laughs> 
well, if people didn't deserve it so much. <laughs> so, is there anything else we want to say about this? Um, I feel like the only other thing that we should I wanted to mention is we talked about the really beautiful diffuse lens, you know, porn style cinematography, but to your point about the film feeling like it's set in a kind of strange, perverse fantasy world, I feel like that is really kind of enhanced by the score from Bernard Parmigiani, oh which my is one God. of my favorite things ever. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's so weird. It's got this like almost so alien. dystopian like science fiction in parts. And it's to- it's different to... Because he was like a big fan of the harpsichord and the more classical soundtracks. And so it's really strange. It's got this like throbbing sort of sound to it. And from the offset, when you see that first shot of the little girl looking out the window and that foggy London street. And, you know, but then you've got this really strange score. And then you realise this kid's been beaten and nearly raped to death. You know, we are in totally different territory here. (laughs) Like, where is this going to go? And I do, that sounds a terrible thing to say, but I do love that addition to the, you know, well, you know, they tried to tamper with the child. Because from the offset, it's totally getting it out there and saying this is what Robert Louis Stevenson would have written if he could have got away with it. Oh, absolutely. And I think it starts it off very much feeling like a horror film. I mean, there's all this sort of blue, murky blue lighting. It almost looks like you're underwater. Like, it's very nightmarish. With the kid, though, as well, I mean, it crosses instantly into a taboo. Sure, and it basically opens like a scene from a horror movie where this little girl is running away from something, drops her doll, stops to pick it up, and so it just, like, it's this like instant kind of onslaught like you feel like you're immediately being attacked before the film has even actually started and you've gotten your bearings which is i think why people that weren't really used to barof chat were very triggered by the film when they just discovered it on disc thinking it was going to be a general horror film because it doesn't really prepare you i think unless you're aware of his work or like his themes because he loved to go into the taboo. I mean, the beast has bestiality in it, and you have incest themes come up in things like a moral tale. So like he, he will just get get the taboo out if he can. So with this, he straight away like child possible child rape and murder. Like there would have been a child rape if this huge penis monster had, could have got away with it. And and it's just so it sets that up straight away to be like really fucking shocking. And even like in 1981, in the in the most, you know, things like Bloody Moon by Jess Franco, for example, or Pieces, some of the more over the top horror films, no one was doing that. Like no one would, even Jess Franco wouldn't have gone that far. No, I I really don't think there's any way to prepare yourself for Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne because it's just (laughs) so fucking insane. I mean, it also has one of my favorite weird tropes that I can't even call it a trope because it doesn't show up in many movies, but people 
shooting bows and arrows at each other out of context. So, like, this isn't a frontier movie where there are Native Americans shooting arrows. It's just fucking Mr. Hyde is firing arrows at people (laughs) inside the house. (laughs) Like you do. Well, it's the same with uh, Slaughter Hotel. That's got a crazy... We love that arrow scene in that. (laughs) It's so good. Yes, we could do a whole sort of film festival of people being shot with arrows. They need to Uh, be There's a Jess Franco film where it happens. (laughs) And they're put not just any arrows in this, they they're randomly poisoned arrows. They've just got them in the house. And I love the explanation. Well, and I think that's just sort of him pointing out yet more hypocrisy and the sort of kind of worship or at least glorification of violence, because General Caro is all sorts of obsessed with his own war record and he has this like set of antique weapons and that's why they have the arrows in the house but it's like it's a step up from having a collection of loaded guns in the house when you have arrows that are dipped in poison and could still kill a person and in fact do in this film. i love the guy is it the reverend guest clement harari yes he pretends to lick the poison like that's his idea of a joke <laughs> He pretends to lick the poison arrow in front of the window. They're all like, oh! And and Howard Vernon is like, don't joke about that, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) He almost steals the film. He's a great little character. We didn't talk about Gerard Zoutberg, who the only other thing I really remember him from is talking to Jess Franco. There's so much Jess Franco on this episode. He's faceless. I know. He's also apparently in Shuarski's Mad Love, which we've podcasted about i don't remember and him we've from that both film. seen a million times yeah I, but he's obviously and he obviously he's got no eyebrows here as well he just looks like with the greatest psychotic. respect but he looks like a fucking nutcase he's brilliant he does and i so he's also in an another you know nutcase French actor who is totally an acquired taste, but who I'm obsessed with is Pierre Clemente. And <laughs> Pierre Clemente uh, directed a few films, including this one called In the Shadow of the Blue Rascal, and Zalkberg is in that. And I feel like he's definitely in that sort of wackadoo avant garde European movie type like he just couldn't be cast in mainstream films he just looks too insane he he just looks too fucking weird bless him he's great (laughs) he's really great i'm glad that they chose to have a separate hide as well because quite often you know when they do the transformation it there's something about it that doesn't work like either the makeup's too much or in the hammer horror one they have hide become more good looking when he becomes hide and that doesn't really it just it just looks like the same no it's weird um and so here they have two people who were just so different to look at and you have this very feral monster creature as as Hyde who just looks completely different in Salzburg with no eyebrows so it's like a fucking alien and then the beautiful Udo Kier as Dr. Jekyll and I just I love the fact that they did that and just Brochet did that and separated those two characters out because you know they're the same person. They don't have to literally be the same person. I, I think it no. doesn't always work when they try to do that. I'm also super grateful that they didn't go with 
this idea of like a more traditional classic cinema hide where he almost looks like a werewolf. Yes. <laughs> like no, none of that. Like that's already been done. And that, that definitely has a specific cultural and historical connotation that I'm sure if we ever do a more sort of straightforward Jekyll and Hyde episode, we could get into, but here, I think it's just so much better to have him instead of become more kind of bestial and simian to become sort of just alien looking and androgynous. Yeah, he is really androgynous. It's, it's perfect. Actually. And then when Marina changes, she becomes almost like a vampire or something. She's incredible with the red lenses and she becomes sexier. And, and yeah, not I actually ugly, not ugly. Or I not, love that. Yeah, it's it's really really incredible, and the way she licks the knife and oh. But I love that they didn't then make her transform into a second actress. No, I'm glad that it's still her, and I think because of that that quality that we've spoken about. That that very ferocious energy, I don't think, you know, well, they would have had to have cast someone else as, as Miss Osborne and just had her in at the end because I don't think there was anybody that could have topped her. She has a very similar no. feral personality in Living Dead Girl as well. So She also wouldn't have tolerated it. No. I, mean, I know that she'll <laughs> never listen to our podcast, but she has sort of a reputation for being a bit difficult. And I can only imagine if how it would have gone down if Borovchik said to her, so after you get into the tub of Solicor, you're going to transform and this other actress will take over. She would have burned the script <laughs> and probably set his car on fire. And like, yeah, that never would have happened. I think she was very because she had a very she had a very, very serious view about what she was doing. She was very, Which is great. A very cultured, very educated woman. I'm talking about her in the past tense, but as far as I know, she's still with yeah, us. She's but still at the, alive, at the time, yes. she was slightly different. She she was very particular about who she worked with and what role she was taking. And she was very, very serious about what she was doing. She wasn't just getting into uh, Eurofilm just to make a few, a few quid. Uh, she was just 100% serious about what she was doing. And, you know, obviously with Borovchek, it was like a meeting of minds. And he would confer with her and he would allow her, because he wasn't really an uh, actor's director. He basically would, was more to do with positioning on the screen and he would allow the actors to develop their own performance. He didn't, it was more to do with him, like you said, objects and composition and things like that. And so I think she read, that's why she worked with him so many times, because she felt, like she was heard, like her input was important. She felt like she was in a partnership with him and she could bring her own ideas into it. And so, you know, she wouldn't have taken shit from anyone. She got on well with Roland as well. So, you know, it just goes to show when people call those directors, quote unquote, misogynist, you know, women and Jess Franco was another one that women loved working with because yeah because he respected people yeah and he would listen and he would allow actors to you know develop their own performance and stuff so 
I know Marina gave a really long interview on the Arrow release of this film, just talking about how she wasn't just amused. She was in a in a like a she saw it as a a partnership between director and actor. Something she speaks about, she's fiercely proud when she talks about her work with Barokchak as well. Which, which is, is incredible. And I, I feel like that is something that really elevates his films and makes them so special is the fact that a lot of the time, you know, he's working with this transgressive sexual material. He's working with genre themes, but he in general has these incredible actors. And you can say the same thing of Zhuavsky for sure. He has these incredible actors who take what they're doing very seriously. And so I think a lot of people, especially people less familiar, especially with Eurocult, have this idea that cult movies are in some way campy or silly. And there are these ridiculous performances and nobody knows what they're doing. But I think somebody like Borovchik had really talented people working behind the camera on screen, and it definitely felt like an active, fruitful collaboration, and not just one guy who wants to put an attractive woman in front of the camera and shoot some bullshit. No, absolutely, and it was much the same way with Jas Franco, because obviously he had his muses, uh, Soledad Miranda, and then Nina Romay, and the Romay partnership obviously was personal and professional, but, you know, that was a 50-50 team. John Roland was the same, and I just think it's very easy for... I have seen, like, these feminist commentators... When John, it was when John Roland appeared on American Netflix, actually. Uh, a few times I saw on Twitter these woke feminists had accidentally encountered John Roland on Netflix. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and it didn't end well. And they were just like, who is this pervy French man? Like, with absolutely no understanding of what was going on in the relationship. It's so frustrating. Yeah. And, and I just think, you know, it's another thing about Borovchek that tends to get overlooked is these are super feminine films. There is... I. When I first encountered them, I, I just fell in love with them instantly because I just thought these films are speaking to me as a woman. They are talking about our sexuality. They're talking about the power of that. Same with Roland, same with Jess Franco. And I think it's one thing that entirely Absolutely. gets overlooked when, especially because the, I know we've mentioned this a few times, but the the weight of film criticism, you know, up until fairly recently like the last couple of decades has been these men who uh male historians maybe not with Borovchak they probably wouldn't touch him with someone else's barge pole uh, you get someone more sensitive <laughs> like Daniel Bird writing about Borovchak but, but the discourse has been dominated by a certain type of very middle class man and you know, so these stories and these reactions to the films are only just coming out now. They're only just really being recorded in in more of a main, like more of a mainstream. Film. I wouldn't say mainstream, but we're seeing more women talking about these films now. Whereas before, there would have been nowhere to do Which that. Which is incredible. It is incredible. There would have been no platform to do that. 
It was like the Roland book was like the first Which... time a whole collection of women were able to get together and discuss what Roland meant to them. And that had never happened before. So it just goes to show we still got a long way to go. It sounds like you're making a pretty serious case for us to cover every Barovchik film. <laughs> I might be. I think we should. I think we I should. I mean, I'm all for it. We should, we should definitely do it. Well, we have to at least do Behind Convent Walls because no one ever talks about that. And Lamarge because, you know, it's my favorite. And Moral Tales. And Moral Tales, yes. And Blanche. I love Blanche. <laughs> we're going to have to do them all, I think. No, I don't know yeah, if we do them necessarily do them in order, though. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. No, it's more fun to do them out of order. Yeah. I think that brings us to the end, then. <laughs> On that note. I know. It's so nice to be back, though. We'd just like to thank everyone for listening and tuning in, and also, obviously, our very patient patrons. I know we've been completely missing in action and we keep promising, you know, we'll be back soon. But obviously we now have this mission to complete. So I think you can be hearing a lot more from us a lot sooner than, than the previous episodes. Uh, yes. And p- please feel free to yell at us if it's been a while. And that that usually will get us going. Or... If you really want us to record an episode, send us an article or a commentary or a podcast <laughs> where somebody talks shit on a film we love, and then we will probably feel the need to jump to its defense. Because <laughs> let's be real, that's how we usually are are inspired. <laughs>